Take your Bibles out and let's turn to James. I almost said the Gospel of James, but that would be incorrect. I'm used to saying the Gospel of Mark, but in just James, that's, that's all. So turn to James, chapter number 1, chapter number 1, verse number 1. And tonight, we are beginning a new series. So we spent, and I don't know, maybe 30-some weeks, which is a long time, um, in our apologetic series, uh, Unshakable Faith, and uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, and I know that I benefited from that. I hope you benefited from that as well. Uh, and if any of that stuff, I know it's not online right now, just with our issues with uploading sermons. Uh, but any of the sermons, you know, I, I taught on with the apologetic series. Let me know if you want any of those. And again, I have all those still. So it's not like I lost those. Uh, it's just the sermon hosting site uh, crashed. So I wasn't able to use that anymore. So, But tonight is exciting because we get to start a brand new series. And I've been looking forward to doing this one, to preaching through uh, the book of James. And uh, not sure how long it's going to take, but again, we'll take our time. We're not in a rush. I uh, really just want to uh, take the time just to, um, just to delve into the Word of God, to go deep, and to spend our time just meditating upon the truth of the Word of God. And there is a lot of practical truth within the book of James. Uh, one of my favorites uh, and obviously, uh, again, I, all, all of it's good and all of it's profitable, but the book of James really just speaks to me because I'm a very practical person. And the book of James is a very practical book that really deals with Christianity and, and really in, in a very practical sense. It, it deals with where, where the rubber meets the road type of Christianity. And it gets just down to the nitty gritty, the basics, the practical elements of the Christian life. And again, I need that. Because I'm a very practical person. So, James 1, verse number 1, the Bible says, we have the introduction here, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And I want to stop right there and go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. And God, as we begin a new series, we pray, Lord, for your blessing to be upon it. God, I pray you, Lord, just give me understanding of your word and help me, Father, to be able to faithfully uh, preach through the book of James. And, Lord, to say what you'd have me to say. God, I pray, Lord, you'd use this in each one of our lives as we come before your word. I pray that our hearts would be teachable, that our hearts would be hungry for the truth. And Lord, that we would have hearts that, uh, Lord, are, 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 are tender and, Lord, receptive to the truth before us. God, just bless tonight, Lord, I pray. Bless as, we inter- as I introduce this sermon, introduce this series. God, I pray, Lord, you'd help me and just give me clarity in my speech and my thoughts, Father, and help me to say what you'd have me to say. And may Christ be glorified, Lord, just through this. And may you get glory through your church. God, may you get glory, Father, as we respond, Lord, to the precious truth of your word and the very practical truths that we're going to be dealing with as we look at the book of James. And Lord, we do pray this all in uh, the name of Jesus. And we pray this and we uh, Lord, just pray you'd be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this evening, and like I said, we're going to begin here. We're not really going to delve into uh, um, anything in depth tonight. Uh, really what I want to do tonight is just lay the foundation. 
Alright, just lay the foundation and then we'll start building the house next week. Alright, we'll really get into the, uh, again, just verse by verse working our way through the book of James. But I think it's helpful, again, I, I think it's helpful for all of us before we actually get into a series, just to deal with some of the introductory uh, material. I know I've tried to do that with some other sermons. Uh, I, I did that with the Gospel of Mark series. I just took a sermon and just gave you some introductory stuff that uh, I think I did that with some other series as well. And I want to do that tonight. And as we get started, I want to remind you about some things that are very simple, uh, but I believe if applied will help you to get the most out of the sermon series. I don't come into this just as a casual observer. Don't just come into this as a casual listener. Come into this with a heart with a heart that is seeking after God. Come into this new sermon series asking God, God, speak to me. God, teach me personally. God, show me areas of my life where I need to grow. And God, give me the grace to do so. Give me the grace to admit where I'm wrong. Give me the grace to admit, again, where I'm spiritually weak or spiritually immature. And God, give me the grace to grow and to be strong in the Lord. So come into this with the right heart. Again, coming and again, ask, coming for the word of God with a heart that is ready to hear and is ready to listen. So a couple of things. Very practical, very simple. How to spiritually profit from uh, this sermon series. And the first one, again, is pretty, uh, again, a no-brainer, is be faithful. You know, be faithful to your PM services. Um, again, I can guarantee you that if, if you just simply come and, and you just sit through this sermon series, and as a casual listener, you'll still get something out of it. All right? Again, I, I would like to see us go beyond that. And take some more practical steps in, in applying the word and, and being intentional listeners. But just coming and hearing the word of God, you're going to benefit from it. So again, as much as you're able, again, I know it's summertime. I know the days are long. I know that uh, people are busier. I know that uh, people have family things going on a lot of times, especially on the weekends. But let me encourage you to be faithful. You know, Let me encourage you to do what the Bible says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. All right, that still applies, um, even on Sunday nights and even in the midst, midst of summertime. So uh, let's not get into a summertime slump. Let's be faithful uh, in being in church on Sunday nights. And again, I can guarantee you that you will profit, that you will spiritually profit from the series. Let's continue on, though. Let me encourage you to read through the book of James. Again, maybe this week, over the next couple of weeks, as long as it takes you, it's really up to you. I mean, if you want to sit down this week and you want to read, it's, it's a really simple book to read through. There's only five chapters. It doesn't, I mean, you could probably sit down in one in one setting and read through it all pretty quickly. All right, so let me encourage you as we get started, this week or next week, just sit down and read through the book of James. Whether you want to do that in one setting or break it up into parts, again, that's that's. Uh, up to you, however you want to do that. But I think you'll spiritually benefit it, benefit from it even more if you read through it beforehand so that you know what's coming. So you have a heads up and you can already be mulling over and even be thinking about maybe there's a text you come across and maybe you have a question about it. All right. And you can be mulling that over and we can even be discussing that. And again, eventually we'll get to that text and, and I'll preach on it. Let me encourage you to take notes. Uh, again, I know taking notes isn't for everyone. I know for some people, again, maybe you have your hands full or maybe, uh, again, taking notes is more of a distraction to you. But if it helps you, let me encourage you, you know, bring a notepad or bring a, a notebook that you can take notes in. 
Again, if that helps you retain what you've learned, again, something you can go back to uh, and review and look over. I know there's a small little area in the bulletin uh, where you can take notes. It's not very big. Again, I, I, I understand that. I don't know where my copy of that is, but it's somewhere in there. So somewhere in the bulletin, again, it has a spot where you can take notes. It's not very big, though. So, again, if you actually want to take more in-depth notes, then I'd encourage you to get a legal pad or a notebook or something and, and take notes through the series. So you can go back and you can retain what you've been taught. You can go back and review it down the road. Say we get through the series and years down the road, you say, I'm in James 2. I don't understand. Again, what is James trying to communicate? You can go back and review the notes. So let me encourage you to do that. Uh, another thing, too, is come with a humble heart and a teachable spirit. Come with a humble heart and a teachable spirit. Again, people who come to a come before the Word of God with a proud heart, they're not going to get much out of the Word of God. People who come before the Word of God with a know-it-all attitude, again, maybe they think, well, I've already heard this before. Again, I this is all just uh, nothing new. Again, I've, I've read through the book of James many times. Don't, don't come before this series. Don't come before the Word of God in the series like that. Come before this the, the Word of God through the series and ask God, like Samuel, again, said to the Lord, again, he prayed to the Lord and said, Speak, Lord, for thy servant, hear it. Ask God. Again, pray to God and ask him to use his word to speak into your life. And God will do so. God will use his word to speak truth into your life. Then lastly, again, I, I told you these were uh, very simple things. Uh, ask God for humility to recognize and change areas of your life that may not be honoring to him. You know, there's going to be some pretty hard things we're going to be dealing with. Uh, there's going to be some pretty hard-hitting practical truths of the word of God that deal with Christian behavior that we're going to be touching on. Uh, through the book of James, again, uh, James, uh, again, he... He doesn't hold any punches. I mean, he he gives it to us. Again, it's out in the open, whether you like it or not. Uh, again, he gives it to us like we need it. And he gives us the truth of the word of God. And it's very practical. It's very to the point, And some of it can be hard hitting. All right. But come before it again with this sense of humility to number one, recognize areas of my life where I need to grow. Guess what? We all need to grow, including me. You know, we all have areas of our life where we need to grow. We all, none of us have arrived. None of us are perfectly sanctified. None of us are glorified. All right. No, we still live in this sinful fallen flesh. And there's areas of our life that are still spiritually immature. There's areas of our life that are still worldly. There's areas of our life that are still not conformed to the image of Christ. Again, and come before God's word with this, with the prayer of the psalmist. Psalm 139, 23. The psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. The psalmist said to God, God, search me. God, show me if there's any way, again, where I need to change. God, show me my heart. God, help me to see the good, the bad, the ugly, so that I can change what I need to. So that I can draw close to you and honor you. May that be the prayer of our hearts as we enter into this series. So tonight, I want to take some time to simply introduce this book to you and uh, deal with some very foundational issues. Beginning with 
the author or the writer of the book of James. So who wrote the book of James? Uh, First of all, we recognize that as with every book of the Bible, God, the Holy Spirit, is the divine author. There's a lot of people who will say, well, didn't men write the word of God? Isn't it just the thoughts of Paul or Peter or James or, or whoever or Moses? Again, isn't this just their thoughts and they recorded them? And what makes the Bible different than some other religious text? Again, we know what the answer is. And the answer is the fact that the word of God is from God. God is the ultimate author. We believe in the inspiration of the Bible. The fact that the very words of Scripture are God breathed all of it and every part of it from beginning to the end equally and completely. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So what we read in the Bible are not – again, it, Paul, Paul wasn't bored one day and just decided to write 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. No, again, God spoke through him. God communicated through him as his human channel or his human instrument through which to pin the word of God. Second uh, Peter 1.21 says, Holy men of God, like Paul, like Peter, like Moses, like James, like John, like others, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. All right, so these holy men of God spake, not just whenever they just had a, a, a rambling thought that they wanted to jot down. No, these men spake, it says, as they were moved by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Again, the words of Scripture are God-breathed. Again, so we know that God is the author, yes, but God also used human channels or human instruments to pin the words that he wanted them to write. Let's continue on, though. In James 1.1, we find that the human instrument or penman that God used was a man by the name of James. And you may be wondering, again, who is James or what James? Because, again, if you're familiar with the New Testament, there's at least three men called James in the New Testament. So out of those three men, which one wrote the book of James? And we have three different options. First of all, we have James, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago in our Mark series, again, we were going through the list of apostles, and James, the son of Zebedee, was one of those apostles. James, the son of Zebedee, is the brother of John, the apostle. Again, both of them were part of that inner circle with Simon Peter, again, with Christ. But, again, we know that that James was not the James who wrote the epistle of James. And how do we know that? Again, we know that because of the fact that this James was put to death. You can read about that in Acts 12 in A.D. 44, which would have been before the book of James was written. All right, so it wasn't James, the son of Zebedee. Uh, there's another James, and that is James, the son of Alphaeus. He is also an apostle, but he's a lesser known apostle. He's like Thaddeus or Simon the Canaanite. Again, not much is known about about James, the son of Alphaeus. And there's really nothing to indicate that he was the James who wrote the book of James. Now, the third James is James, the brother of the Lord. Okay, James, the Lord's brother. In Mark 6, verse 3, it has a reference to Jesus as the son of Mary, 
the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon. All right, so we find here that Jesus had brothers. And again, we dealt with that a little bit this morning in the Gospel of Mark. And this is likely the this is the most likely candidate for who wrote the book of James. And as we touched on this morning, what's interesting is that the brothers of Jesus didn't believe in him again leading up to or before his crucifixion and resurrection. All right, they didn't believe in him as the Messiah. John 7 5 says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. So what changed them from unbelievers to believers? The resurrection. All right, what changed his brothers from unbelievers to believers was the resurrected Christ. Was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which proved to them that Jesus was the Messiah. That Jesus was the Son of God. That Jesus was who he claimed to be. Christ, the Son of God. And James had no doubt in his mind. And this is what led to his faith in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, the Bible records that James was one of those that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Which is what led to the conversion of James. And that's when James became a a believer. And James, the Lord's brother... Uh, became a leader in the early church, in the apostolic church, specifically in the church at Jerusalem. And he became one of the leaders in that church. Uh, Galatians 2 verse 9 refers to him as one of the pillars of the church, along with Peter and John uh, during the apostolic uh, early church period. We see him in Acts 15, uh, whenever whenever you had that early church council, um, again, we see him in Acts 15 acting as some sort of moderator or senior elder of that church council. So we see that James was converted. Again, he recognized Jesus was truly the Messiah and he was saved. Again, he became a leader in the church, specifically in the church at Jerusalem. But something that is interesting about James is that with all of his influence, with his position of leadership, uh, again, even with the fact that he was related to Jesus, Even with all that, James was a humble servant of Christ. James was a humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse number one and see how he describes himself. He refers to himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James could have boasted, well, I'm the brother of the Lord. James could have boasted, again, I'm I'm the leader at the church in Jerusalem. Again, I am one of the pillars of the church. Again, James could have boasted about those things, but he didn't. Why? Because he had true humility. James didn't boast about his position. James didn't boast about his influence. James didn't boast about his relationship with Jesus. He made boast in Christ. And he was willing to be identified, again, as a mere servant of the Lord. What's interesting is the word servant here is the Greek word doulos which literally means a bondman, a slave. It is the lowest term in the skill of servitude. It is one who gives himself up to the will of another. All right, so that's who James was. James was a servant. James was, again, as we see with the Greek word that's used here, again, he used the lowest term on the skill of service, servitude. He used the lowest term to describe himself. And describing himself as a servant, used the Greek word doulos, again, he was recognizing the fact that he had given up himself to the will of another. 
he had given up his will to the will of Christ. And he was a mere servant. He was a mere vessel in the hands of Christ that Christ could shape and mold and teach and use for his service and for his glory. James was not devoted to his own agenda. He was devoted to the will of Christ. Again, James could say with John the Baptist, again, he had the same attitude of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was the one who said he must increase, I must decrease. Or John the Baptist is the one who says, who said, I'm not even worthy to unlatch, uh, again, to unloose the, the, the shoe of Christ. And we see James had a similar attitude. And this attitude of a faithful servant of Christ, recognizing that it's not about me. And it's not about, uh, again, it's not, it's not about my will, but it's about God's will. It's the attitude, again, where one surrenders themselves to the will of God, saying, God, again, I want your plans and your purposes and your will accomplished within my life. And we see the way that James lived is also the way that he died. The Jewish historian Josephus, uh, again, records that James died as a martyr in service to Christ, in A.D. 62, when he was put to death for his faithfulness to Christ. Now, again, there's differing accounts about how he died. Uh, so, again, I, I don't know. Again, I don't know how he died. But, again, um, those accounts all record that he died as a martyr and, and service because he chose to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ as a servant of Christ. So a lot we can learn about James, the one who God used to write this book. Continue on, though. Let's consider the audience. To whom was it written? To whom was it written? Uh, Take a look at verse number one. And again, this is answered for us. It says, to the 12 tribes. Who's that speaking about? Jewish, Jewish people. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So who is this a reference to? This is a reference to the Jews who had believed on Christ as the Messiah and who had been scattered abroad. They had been dispersed. Why? Because of the persecution. Because of the intensity of the persecution against the early church at that time in history. In Acts 8, 1, the Bible records, it says, at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And Saul, who eventually became Paul, was actually one of the ringleaders in this persecution against the church. In Acts 12, we find that King Herod was one who sanctioned the persecution of the church. It says, it says in Acts 12, 1, Now about, this, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. So we find here that there is this great wave of persecution that is affecting the church during this apostolic period. And because of that, many of the Jews that had been centered in Jerusalem up to that point, what did they have to do? They had to scatter. They had to disperse. They had to go abroad, which from a mere human perspective may seem like a bad thing, but in reality, it was actually a good thing. All right, God never wanted them to stay in Jerusalem. Remember what God said in Acts 1.8? He 
Again, be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So God never wanted them to simply stay in that locality. Yeah, we see that's what they were doing. Yet God was able to use the persecution against the church, what men intended for evil, God used for good. God used it to scatter the church into a place of obedience. God told them to scatter. God told them to go through the regions beyond. God told them to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And God even, God allowed the persecution, what men intended for evil, God used it to bring about something good. God scattered the church to where? God scattered them to Samaria and Judea and beyond. All right, to the point, again, where they were kind of forced to obey God, in a sense, having to go beyond Jerusalem. So we find here that James was written during this time. James was written during the infancy of the church, during this apostolic period, a time when these, these new believers were undergoing severe persecution and trials and suffering for their faith. Uh, many of these new believers were struggling. They were struggling. There was, there was persecution from outside of the church. I mean, sanctioned by the government, there is persecution against the church. And it was intense to the point where they had to leave their homes. Many of them had to leave their livelihoods in order to flee to safety. All right. So, again, there was persecution from outside of the church. But within the church, there were problems, too. There was worldliness. There was partiality. There was pride. There was strife within the assembly. And what these believers needed was some practical truth to strengthen them in their trials and to help purify the church and to help them as a church to overcome sin, to be unified, to stay faithful to God and to live out an authentic faith. And that's what James is all about, living out an authentic faith, living out a faith that affects every area of life, every area of life. Yet we consider the struggles they faced in the first century, and they're not that different than the struggles we face in the 21st century. Sure, again, there may, historically speaking, there's a lot that has changed, maybe technologically, uh, but the same struggles that they dealt with have really been the struggles of the church down throughout, uh, down throughout church history. And the solutions they needed are still the solutions we need. Again, this is the timeless truth of the Word of God. The struggles they face are the struggles we face. The solutions they needed are the solutions we need. Therefore, we can come before the book of James and we can relate. We can relate in ways to what they were dealing with in our day and age. Again, and we can benefit and we can profit from the book of James. God calls us to live out this authentic faith, just as he was calling the first century believers to do so. God is calling 21st century believers to live out an authentic faith. Let's continue on. Though. What, are the, what, are the, what are its characteristics? The attributes of the book of James. A couple of things. Uh, first of all, it is part of the general epistles. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, again, the New Testament is divided up into different categories. You have the Gospels. You have the book of Acts, which is church history. Um, you have the Pauline epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, etc. And then you have what's often referred to as the general epistles. Then you have Revelation at the end. Uh, but the general epistles are made up of James, 
1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. All right, so those are the general epistles. So what, what's, again, what's characteristic about the general epistles? Why are they called general epistles? It's not overly complicated. The reason why they're called general epistles is because they're not addressed to any particular church or group of churches. All right, for example, think of the Pauline epistles. Paul would often write to groups of believers or to a specific church. Paul would write to, for example, Paul would write to um, uh, the church at Colossae. That makes up the book of Colossians. Or the church at Philippi. That makes up the church, uh, or that makes up the book of Philippians. And so on and so forth. All right, so these are books written to believers in general. Uh, So that's why it's called the general epistles. Secondly... Um, the book of James is traditional, traditionally believed to be the oldest book in the New Testament canon of Scripture, uh, written around A.D. 45, which would make it the oldest New Testament book. And what's interesting is those who have studied ancient Jewish uh, manuscripts of the New Testament, uh, what the book of James, again, the order of the books, the book of James, again, in our Bible, it's near the, it's near the end. All right, it's close to Revelation. It's not far before you get to the end of the New Testament once you make it to James. But in the ancient Jewish manuscripts, James actually follows the book of Acts. All right, so it's included much earlier in the Bible than where we have it in, again, our, in, in our Bibles today um, in the Jewish manuscripts. Let's continue on, though. Thirdly, it has a strong Jewish flavor, which would make sense considering the fact that most of the believers this early, this early in this apostolic period were Jewish. They were Jewish believers. There weren't many Gentiles, Gentile believers at this point. Now that number would grow over time, uh, but at this time, this early on in, in, in this apostolic period of church history, most of the believers that formed up, that formed the church at Jerusalem were Jewish believers that were saved on the day of Pentecost. All right, so the Jewish believers who believed upon Christ, they were saved on the day of Pentecost. They were baptized, believers' baptism, and then they were added to the church. All right, so again, we find that many of the believers were Jewish. Again, and that makes sense why this would have a more Jewish flavor to it. And then number four, it is very practical in nature. The book of James is a very practical book. Uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why I really like the book of James. Uh, James is sort of like the Proverbs of the New Testament. Again, a lot of people like reading through the Proverbs, and what you can actually do is just read a proverb a day, a chapter a day, and read through it in a month. And the reason why so many people like reading through the book of Proverbs is because it's just it's just so practical. It, it deals with very practical, real-life things, you know, things that we can all relate to, things we deal with on a daily basis oftentimes. And that's why so many people... Uh, spend so much time in the book of Proverbs. Well, James is sort of like the Proverbs of the New Testament because of its practicality. There's some books of the Bible that deal more with um, the doctrinal side of things, the belief side of Christianity, which is important. We need that uh, because behavior follows belief, whereas we also have books like James that deal more with the, the behavior aspect. Uh, the duty aspect of the Christian life. And again, we need to find that balance. And the word of God gives us that balance because it's often, there's oftentimes 
again, where we can become in balance. You know, the, the Bible perfectly balances uh, belief and behavior, doctrine and duty, right, right believing and right living. The Bible perfectly balances those. But for us, we need both because we can often get imbalanced in those areas where, again, we, 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 we either go one direction or the other. Where we just focus so much on doctrine that we don't ever deal with the practical elements of the Christian faith. So we have our heads full of, of Christian knowledge, but we don't know how that actually looked, what that actually looks like or how to actually live that out on a day-in and day-out basis. But then there's others who veer in the other direction and just focus on the behavior aspect and our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with others, which is important. But if you don't have right doctrine, you're not going to have a right relationship with God or with others. So what do you need to do? You need to spend time in the word because the word will balance those out within your life. We're called to both right belief and right behavior. So why was it written? And what is the aim? What is the purpose of the book of James? And there's really three major themes in the book of James that help us understand why it was written uh, that really stand out to us as we, um, as we work our way through the book of James. The first one is that the book of James reveals the substance of true faith. The book of James reveals the substance of true faith. Now, James is going to deal with James is going to deal with true faith, living faith versus dead faith or false faith. All right. And James shows us the truth about that. It shows us the relationship between faith and works, for example. James says, for example, faith without works is dead. What does he mean by that? Well, James makes it clear what he means by that. He shows us this relationship and this, uh, this uh, really this often neglected truth that true saving faith is evidenced by good works. True saving faith is evidenced by good works. That's what he means when he says faith without works is dead. Now let me state the Bible makes it clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by good works. And I've emphasized that, again, throughout many different teachings and sermons and series that I've done. So the root of salvation is faith alone in Christ. And the moment you add works to that, it's not the gospel. The moment you add works to the finished work of Jesus, again, that's not true saving faith. All right, so the root of salvation is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Saving faith apart from works. But... The fruit of salvation is good works. All right. Think of a fruit tree. There's not going to be any fruit unless a tree is planted. It takes root and then it bears fruit. And it's the same thing spiritually. When the gospel is implanted within our heart, when we receive it by faith, guess what happens? As we grow in Christ, as we grow in our knowledge of the word of God, guess what starts to be produced in our life? Spiritual fruit. The fruit of good works will begin to be seen within our lives. Again, it would be concerning, again, if, if we planted a tree, uh, a fruit tree, and it never bore fruit. All right? there's, probably a, there's, there's probably some issue with the root system of that tree. All right? That tree has some issue, uh, again, where again, that tree is not producing fruit. It's a, it's a dead tree. And it's the same thing spiritually, too. 
The Bible teaches that his faith alone in Christ, again, which is the root of salvation, but that true faith will manifest itself in good works. And somebody who claims to have faith but has no good works to back it up has what James calls a dead faith. And in the book of James, we're reminded that our profession of faith in Christ must be seen in our practice. Again, and it will be seen in our practice. Yes, at varying degrees, at varying levels. There's a process of growth that happens, but it will be seen. It will be seen within our life. And James is not teaching a works-based system of salvation. All right. Again, I know a lot of uh, works-based systems, uh, Catholics, for example, they'll often point to the book of James. And they'll say, well, doesn't James say faith without works is dead? Yes, but not like you think it. Again, it doesn't mean what you think it means. All right, James is not totally contradicting what Paul says in Romans, where Paul clearly teaches justification by faith. Actually, James and Paul complement one another. They show the balance between faith and works. It's been said that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. All right, so faith alone, in Christ alone, that is the root of salvation. But whenever the gospel is truly implanted within the heart, it will bear fruit. That fruit, those works, don't add anything to salvation. But again, it's evidence of true saving faith within somebody's life. And because of that, again, this, this truth, this book, again, the fact that Again, true saving faith will evidence itself in good works. Again, this is a truth that is needed to be pressed upon the church in every age and also in our in our day and age. Again, there are multitudes of people who say, yes, I have a relationship with Jesus or yes, again, I am saved. I am a Christian. But then you look at their life. And where's where's the evidence? Where's the fruit where is the practice of Christianity? Again, and again, we don't expect perfection, obviously, but we should see some fruit. If somebody claims to be a Christian, we ought to see some level of fruit within their life. We ought to see some level of growth within their life. Again, if what they have is a true and living faith. Again, every age has those who veer into the realm, into the ditch of antinomianism. Uh, I think I'm saying it right, antinomianism. Am I saying that right? I think so. I don't know why I can't pronounce that tonight. But again, those who would turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Those who would turn the grace of God and use the grace of God as a license to sin. And you have people like that even in our day and age. We talk about grace, 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 love, love, love. Again, I have a walk with Jesus. But then you look at their life, and again, there's nothing to back it up. Again, their, their lifestyle doesn't match their profession. Their practice doesn't met, match what they profess that they believe, and that's a problem. James calls it a dead faith. Titus 1.16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. So we find here that Paul, or James, makes it clear what the substance of true faith is. Secondly... The book of James is written to encourage believers to be patient through suffering. To encourage believers to be patient through suffering. James is writing to a suffering group of believers. To a believer, to a group of believers that are undergoing intense persecution. 
intense trials of their faith. They're being tested. They're going through the fire. They're being afflicted because of their faith. Again, the fire is hot. And James encourages them both at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book and throughout the book to be patient through suffering. The word patient or patience is used seven times in the book of James. And we live in a day and age whenever believers need to be reminded of this truth again. The the prosperity gospel uh, really has done so much damage to Christianity and to the testimony of Christianity throughout the world. Again, and what it's done, what it, it's done a lot of things, but one of the things that it has done and how it's negatively affected the witness of the church is the fact that, again, it, it portrays this image that those who follow Jesus are promised to be healthy, wealthy, again, and to, to be prosperous within, within this life. If they follow Jesus, so you, again, they, they go to third world countries and again, they promise all these things. And again, if you sow a seed to their ministry and, you know, you give them all this money, then God promises that he'll heal you of your diseases. Or God promises that God promises that he'll he'll make you wealthy and make you materially prosperous in this life. And the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. Jesus never promised that believers would have those things on this earth. Now, again, what is yet to come? And when we are with Christ, again, yes, we'll have perfect health. Again, yes, we'll have again the, the, the riches and the treasures of heaven. But the Jesus said in this world, ye shall have what? John 16, 33. Jesus said in this world, ye shall have tribulation. There's going to be trials. There's going to be affliction. There's going to be pain. There's going to be loss. There's going to be grief. And yes, again, it's, it's, a, it's a grand thing to be a Christian. It's wonderful. And there's so many blessings that are bestowed upon the Christian. At the same time, again, there's still pain. And there's still, dis- there's still disappointment. And there's still loss. And there's, there's, there's earthly trials that we go through. But the book of James makes it clear. And we're going to deal with this next week. We're going to deal with the topic of suffering. Again, and how we're to respond to suffering. But God often uses suffering... You know, if we respond in faith, trusting him, looking to him, God can use suffering and trials and afflictions in our life really more than anything else to grow us and to mature us and to draw us closer to him. None of us – we don't beg God and plead for afflictions and trials. No, none of, us, none of us do that. At the same time, God often uses those things that are painful to draw us close to him. God often uses those things that are difficult to draw us close to him and to conform us to the image of Jesus. So we see that's the second reason why James was written. Number three is James was written to call believers to spiritual maturity, to call believers to spiritual maturity. The word perfect is used six times in the book of James. And James encourages believers to be perfect in Christ. And that's not speaking about a sinless perfection. Again, none of us will attain to that in this life. But what is speaking about what the word perfect means, it literally means it means to be mature in Christ. It means to be grown up in Christ. It means to be an adult in Christ, not a, not a spiritual infant. It means to grow up in Christ, to be complete in Christ, to be mature in Christ. And the book of James shows us how we can do that. 
the book of James shows us, number one, what a childish faith, not a childlike faith, which is a good thing, but a childish faith and immature faith looks like, but also how to go beyond that and how to grow and how to be mature in Christ. And how to have, again, the kind of faith, this complete faith, this perfect faith that God calls us to. We live in a day and age when many believers need this message. And when many believers, again, are, are, are similar to the believers in Corinth. Again, we'll talk about this on, on Wednesday night. And the Apostle Paul rebuked the church at Corinth because, again, they weren't growing up. Again, they had all this strife and all these divisions and all this carnality and all this sin within the church. Again, and the reason for it is because they weren't growing up in the Lord. They were staying spiritual babies, right? still feeding upon the milk of the word when they should have been feeding upon the meat of the word. But they couldn't handle it because they had never grown up. I want to share a quote with you. This is by one Bible commentator, and he says this, and I quote, He says, spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in churches today. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. The members are not mature enough to eat the solid spiritual food they need, so they have to be fed on milk. Just look at the problems James dealt with, and you can see each of them is characteristic of little children. So what are those? In chapter 1. He deals with impatience and difficulties. All right, that's a that's a characteristic of, of children. But it can also be a characteristic of spiritual children, of, of Christians, again, who haven't grown up. Impatience and difficulties. In chapter 2, another characteristic is talking but not living the truth. Talking a good talk but not living out the truth. Chapter number 3, no control of the tongue. No control of the tongue. All right, that's a characteristic of a child. But it's also a characteristic of a Christian child. All right, one who hasn't matured, one who hasn't grown up. Chapter 4 deals with fighting and coveting. All right, put a bunch of kids in a playpen together, and you'll see what, you'll see what this looks like. All right, fighting and coveting, desiring things that don't belong to you. All right, the other kid's toy looks better than yours, and it could be the same exact toy. All right, but fighting and coveting, chapter 4, but the same thing happens spiritually. Chapter 5 deals with collecting material toys. All right, so all these things, this commentator says, are characteristics of little children, but each of them can also be seen within a church. And whenever these things are seen within a church, and whenever these things are seen within the life of individual Christians, it's a sign that there needs to be some spiritual maturity. That there needs to be some spiritual growing up in Christ. Again, if these things are evident, again, and, and, and James shows us how a person can grow up, how a person can grow into complete maturity and perfect and perfection in Jesus. So again, that's all for tonight. That's all I want to share with you. Uh, again, but I hope that's helpful. Hope that's a, a good foundation just to build upon. And next week, we're going to get in uh, to chapter number one. We're going to begin dealing with the topic of suffering. So, uh, but we'll close there tonight. So let's uh, let's have a word of prayer and let's ask the Lord to help us uh, prepare our hearts uh, for this series and that God would use it in our lives to grow each and every one of us. Let's pray. 
Father God, we come before you, Lord, and God, we just want to thank you again for this time you've given us. And God, just allowing me to introduce uh, the book of James. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would use this in the hearts and lives of your people. God, I pray, Lord, that we would see areas of our life where we need to grow. And God, that we'd have the humility to admit that. But secondly, God, that, that we would have just the desire to grow. And Lord, to uh, grow in maturity or to grow in patience through suffering, Lord. Or, uh, Lord, to live out this authentic faith in Christ. God, I pray, Lord, that you would just bless and guide or the sermon series over the next couple of weeks. And God, I pray you'd be honored and glorified in it. And God, we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.